welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection. The Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, um, I think we're fortunate to have Jude Colangelo. Jude is the founder and president at Eat the Bear. So probably not a well-known story around town, but Jude, Jude has grown Eat the Bear from uh, kind of his own uh, a company or not even a company, an idea that was there to fill his own protein needs, protein supplements needs to a company that raised a million dollars in late 2017 um, has you know nearly doubled over the course of just the last couple of months and will likely raise additional capital here in 2018. Um, they partnered with Luke Keekley several years ago. They've got some new products that are right about to launch as we speak right now. Uh, really, I think, kind of a unique um, unique company here in Charlotte, unique startup here in Charlotte is probably more like the right way to say it. And to bring that, and, and not surprisingly, when, when Jude raised money last year, he had to do it outside of Charlotte. So he did not raise money in Charlotte and not sure he'll be able to raise his next round here in Charlotte either. So... Neat story, neat concept. He's growing up in a crowded, crowd, crowded industry, crowded field. So, you know, what does that mean? How did he get started? Um, what, um, what has it taken for him to to get to where he is today? Um, how does he add products to his product line? Um, how um, how is he trying to break into an established industry, and what does it really mean? Um, and, you know, what's, does he regret any aspect of starting down this road of, of, of creating Eat the Bear a couple of years ago, or I guess, um, nearly 10 years ago now. So really neat concept just to get back into the entrepreneur side of the equation. So the last couple of weeks, we obviously had TJ on talking about the investor side. Uh, the story of the entrepreneur is what we're going to tackle today. Um, I think you'll be, you know, uh, pleased to hear Pleased to hear Jude's story and kind of how he got to where he is. This is a story that I think a lot of entrepreneurs in Charlotte could follow. So hopefully you enjoy today's podcast on the Charlotte Angel Connection. All right, Jude. Thanks uh, again. Thanks for taking a little bit of time out of your day today to sit down and talk about Eat the Bear. I'm excited about our conversation. Thank you. Appreciate being here. So, you know, you and I have had a chance to kind of catch up here for the last 30 or 45 minutes, learn more about you and learn more about Eat the Bear as well. So... You're, as we kind of talked about, you're a, a hidden asset here in Charlotte. Um, so not many people know your backstory. So can you give us how to get to 2018 um, with Eat the Bear being a, a fast-growing brand here in Charlotte and I guess really across the country? Across the country, for sure, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> sure. So it was, by all accounts, a very happy accident. Um, my background is 23 years in um, running investment banking operations, uh, and so um, Eat the Bear is something that I had started to solve a problem for me, which was uh, a number of years ago, it was getting increasingly difficult to find a lactose-free protein, uh, and it was a lot more fit back then than I am now, but... Um, so in order to solve for that, uh, I had um, created 
to certain specifications the um, sort of the perfect protein, if you will, right? And uh, it had to uh, be very clean, very lean, minimal ingredients. Uh, and so I had constructed that uh, back in 2009-ish, right? And so real quick, so, time out. We didn't talk about that. So um, investment banking guy constructing a protein formula. Yeah. Um, Google? No, sorry. Um, so I knew the specifications, but in terms of actually putting the pieces together to formulate it, I worked with a nutritional scientist um, to come up with the the actual formula okay right and ingredients and so forth and it had to meet 10 specifications it had to um be 110 to 120 calories no carbs no fat no sugars lactose free cholesterol free gluten free um no banned substance sourced and assembled in the u.s and it had to taste amazing okay right? and so, so that's easy yeah yeah, yeah. I'm not a very demanding person whatsoever yeah so um but we had come up with it and that was challenge number one challenge number two of course was finding anybody willing to make it any co-packer willing to make it in small quantities they want to run a million containers of something not 10 15 20 pounds of something yeah right? and so um I, I found a small shop at the time and how how yeah i mean yeah, yeah. that was google yeah that was good. <laughs> and that was a lot of phone calls and a lot of site visits and everything else so um, the, and finally, uh, found a small shop who was willing to make small amounts of powder. And this was to start off with, um, this was just a personal, this was for you personally, right? Strictly me. It was, um, 25 pound clear bags with powder and a cardboard box, a few of which would get delivered on my doorstep. Right? White powder? Uh, well, no, this was sort of a light brown powder because it was a uh, cinnamon bun at the time. Fair and, enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't... So not as much concerned about shipping light brown powder. No, no, no we didn't what, have to go over any borders with it or anything. So, <laughs> Fair so, enough. <laughs> so it was okay. Um, and then um, I was still doing... Because, again, this was a hobby. It wasn't a business. It yep. wasn't a brand. It didn't even have a container. Right. Um, so I was um, still working uh, at that time. Uh, I was back in the States and, and uh, working out in New York. And uh, over time, mostly through 2010, other people started trying it, family members, friends, et cetera, and saying, wow, that's amazing. Can you get me five pounds next time? So now my little 50 pound <coughs> orders were getting bigger, right? And yeah. So, but they were still clear mylar bags in a brown box type of thing. And so then somebody um, said, well, you know, this was late 2010. And somebody said, oh, you should sell this stuff online. And I knew as much about the internet as I do about brain surgery. And um, so I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. And yeah. for the purpose, for the sake of your listeners, I don't know anything about brain surgery. Yeah. Okay. So just, just to be clear on that. And, so, um, one product, one formula, one flavor, that was it. It was in a terrible container with a terrible label on it. Um, it was, if I, if I could have botched it, it was botched. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, 
don't have a creative bone in my body. Right? Except for the flavor. Except for the flavor. I got the yeah. flavor right. And so, and um, it started to sell. It was, you know, mostly by word of mouth. We didn't do any advertising. We'd do some grassroots, you know, demos and expos and things like that. Um, but it was just me and my cinnamon bun, basically. Um, did you carry inventory or how did that... So by the time that it became a product, yeah. right, in 2011, I had to have minimum order quantities mm-hmm. with the co-packer and so forth. So I did have a lot of two-pound containers of cinnamon bun okay. in my house. Okay. Yes. And yeah. I would come home at night and pack out my two-pound boxes uh-huh. and ship them off. But uh, so Profitable how soon? Oof. And I guess um, define profitability. Define profitability. Yeah. <laughs> Not not taking a salary, were you profitable? Um, so in in our first year, um, the revenues were twenty five thousand. Okay, right. So, um, but also our expense base was zero. Yeah, right. It was me. It was product, and it was you know um, a spare room in my house, basically. And yeah. So, um, um, it wasn't until later, as the you know we added, I added more products, and the brand really began to. To evolve, that I made a bunch of um, uh, expensive mistakes. Yeah. Right. And so, um, fortunately, those mistakes are behind us, uh, and you know we live to fight another day, type of thing. But the um, so I probably went from profitable to really unprofitable. Yeah. For a little while, and then back to profitable. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the so were you in New York when you started? Were you still in New York when you started shipping the boxes and selling it on the internet? Yeah, you were. Yeah, okay. I'm still based out of New York. Okay. So, uh, and so that was 2011. In June 2012, um, I had moved down here. I moved the business down with me, and then you know by 2015, it was starting to appear in a real retail stores, right? It just wasn't an online community and so forth. Now, there was a groundswell of support. People were walking into local retailers saying, hey, well, do you carry the bear type of thing, right? Okay. And then those retailers would call us and say, hey, I got customers who are asking about you, right? And so you didn't have a sales team out calling the local grocery yeah. store chains mm-hmm. to push the product. Mm-hmm. No it way. was inbound sales calls. Yeah, and at that point, we couldn't get into a, um, a major retailer if we wanted to, right? Um, so um, really, it was the independent retailers um who and who were forever grateful to, right? Sort of like um, Charlotte Wholesale Supplements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the it's guys like Tom who we owe a debt of gratitude because you know eventually we went from you know one place to ten places to you know a couple thousand across the U.S. That's when you know the bigger retailers uh, became interested in us, right? And they started calling us uh, because the brand was established. We had a retail record, right? and in fact, there was a. It's a space called FDM, which is food drug mass. So large okay. grocery like Harris Teeter, large drug chains like CVS, Walgreens, and then mass are things like big sporting goods, Academy Sports, Costco, things like that. So the FDM space um, is pretty coveted, and uh, 
our very first FDM account um, was HEB in Texas, which is sort of like a Harry Stater in Texas, but it's revered in the grocery channel. I mean, the people people were amazed that that was the first FDM account we ever got. Normally, you spend years trying to pitch to HEB, and maybe you get in, right? Yeah. And here it was our first account, but the brand had its own cachet and, and presence and, you know, hit a spot that they needed uh, for their customer base and so forth. And it's, H-E-B has been phenomenal to work with over the years. Uh, and then once H-E-B puts something on your, on its shelf, right, then every retailer on the planet wants it. Yeah. Right. Uh, because they are like, ah, so you got a little bit of that kind of, they have it, we need it. Yeah. And, and we've been very selective because we, we maintain a great relationship with not only our independent retailers, but also our large FDM accounts like Harris Teeter, HEB, and things like that, Publix. Um, because um, we won't just go into anything. We turn down Walmart, right? We turn down some other things. Uh, we are in CVS, um, and they've been good to work with. Uh, but we are... We really want to keep the intimacy and the relationship with the end consumer. And so it's always a balancing act of making sure that our customers have something on the shelf wherever they're going, but equally um, that we don't get disenfranchised um, because there's too many layers in the supply chain, let's say, with our end customer. So, um, so we're very selective in terms of retailers who will actually work with. So you... Um so you left your corporate job a year ago, give or take, mm-hmm. 11 months ago, I believe. That's right. Um, so from as you were getting those HBM, right? What you call H-E-B. It? H-E-B. Yep. Um, as you were getting that and other corporate accounts, you were handling those from 8 o'clock at night to 8 in the morning. How did you? Uh, yeah. I mean, literally, I'd be in the office uptown meaning the eat the bear offices you know quarter five five in the morning because i had an early start across the street right i had to be on the desk by 6 30 a.m things like that so on the desk your previous job was futures trading that's right okay yeah. uh, futures operations okay, sorry um, so the um the which supported all the futures trading um and so so I would spend a couple hours in the morning at Eat the Bear and then a couple hours in the evening. I was very fortunate to have a phenomenal COO who um, ran it during the day for me yeah. uh, and um, a, a phenomenal salesperson who managed the relationships. Um, and so between the two of them, the logistics were handled and the relationships were handled. And then on either side of the work day, I took care of sort of the administrative stuff, finances. Things like that. Um, what's it's crazy that you went across the literally <laughs> you, across you, the street. You went yeah. across the street, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, what? I mean, again, you, you were on the in the futures business, kind of corporate America for many, many years. Um, loads of experience in sourcing protein and running a business on your own, mm-hmm. um, shipping stuff across the country. Um, managing supply chains and everything else. I mean, all of that stuff just came second nature to you. Um, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> What's, um, how'd you do it? Um, 
I don't know is the answer. Um, it's, it becomes a bit of a blur, but um, most of my career is uh, on Wall Street has either been building something or rebuilding something, right? And going into places and spaces that I didn't understand, quickly learning it, right? And um, trying to do it um, better. Uh, so the so I think this wasn't too divergent from that, right? As a as an expertise because um, there was a lot to learn very quickly um, and by every stretch of the imagination I stepped on every landmine there was that I made every mistake there was to make um, and you know we moved on past it so uh, which is great especially now because we don't make those mistakes anymore right yeah. they, they're way more expensive to make later in in the evolution of the company than they are early in the company. I think the relativity of that mistake, right, when you have very little revenues and maybe that's an expensive mistake, yeah. is much greater. But, <clears throat> excuse me, dollar for dollar, that mistake is way greater later in life. Yeah. Right? So the good news is all those mistakes as I was learning and cutting my teeth are behind us now. Well, you're also moonlighting too, so yeah. it's not like at that point in time it's your sole paycheck. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, anybody who's you know, built or rebuilt something or work together in uh, any capacity knows it's less about you and more about the people around you. And, you know, whether that was in an investment bank or any the bear, um, it was always about surrounding yourself with phenomenal talent. Right? And, you know, so if you could source a salesperson who knew something about it and a logistics guy or COO, um, and then I filled in the gaps, so and we just all did it together. But you're a um, so you're working, you know, downtown on the futures corporate America. Um, you got to eat the bear across the street. You hire a CEO or COO and a sales guy. So it's a startup company um, where you're not there full time, mm -hmm. um, and you turn the keys over. <laughs> And first of all, you attract people to the role in the first place that have some concept of what they're doing. Yeah. How does, I mean, how do you attract the people? I mean. Well, and I'll be honest, I made some hiring mistakes too. Yeah. Right? So um, you had to turn over a couple of them before you found the, the good ones, mm -hmm. right? And um, so the COO actually um walked into my office one day to try to sell me something, right? And which office? Eat the bear? Or eat the bear, sorry, bear. yeah, no, eat the bear. And he was working for a different company in Charlotte. He walked in to try to sell me services. And I was never gonna buy those services, but I really liked him mm -hmm. and got to know him as a person and everything else. And then he finally said, are you ever going to sign a deal with me? And I said, are you ever just going to come work for me? Yeah. So I ended up hiring him. And then uh, with the sales guy, um, he was with another company that started, another nutrition company that started out of um, Charlotte, eventually sold to one of the biggest nutrition um, uh, companies on the planet. And he came to me because they were in the ready-to-eat space. And we were in, at that point in time, sort of mostly powders. And he said, he came to me and said, hey, let's join sales forces, right? And you guys sell our product, we'll sell your product, and we'll offer everything. 
and I got to know him really well. I never did do that trade, but I did hire him. Yeah. And so, <laughs> fair enough. So, um, it'll teach you to approach me. But, <laughs> um, so, and the rest is really history. Once I found those two, we were off to the races. Okay. Um, so you mentioned products. So your first product was, um, kind of designed to, for you. It was a, um, it was an isolate protein, protein. product. Yeah. Um, but, you put an S on the end of it a couple of times in our conversation already. So you've added multiple products. Mm -hmm. Um, how are you going about adding products to your product lineup? Yeah, a couple of different ways. Um, so we look for, uh, and no secrets here, obviously, um, this is a very, very crowded space, right? What wasn't crowded in the space was a very clean and lean, approach to the product, yeah. right? We do with four or five ingredients what a number of other companies do with 20 ingredients, mm -hmm. right? So we always want to keep true to the core of the business, which is clean, lean, trusted, and approachable, right? So when you're in the grocery store, we want grabbing a two-pound container of protein or something else as approachable as um, the tomatoes and the tissues, yeah. right? And so... The, so as we think about our products, um, or as customers call us, email us, ask us things on social media, like, Hey, do you guys have one of these or some of these, et cetera? We think, okay, you know what? There is a bit of a demand here for a clean, lean version of this. Yeah. Right. And so, um, we'll tinker with that. We'll test it. Uh, and meaning just from a consumer perspective, and if it's well received, we bring it out. And, you know, then, and we do the same thing at the flavor level as well. So, you know, with our proteins, we have uh, about nine different protein flavors. Um, and that population ebbs and flows, right? So at one point we had 12. Some of the flavors weren't working, but the product itself was working, right? Yeah. So, so we do a lot of triangulated, um, development between, sort of our own research in terms of where the market's going and what the demand will be versus what customers are telling us they're looking for, uh, along with um, uh, sort of fleshing out those ideas vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, tasting groups and uh, online um, uh, social media concept testing. Okay. So you mentioned it earlier, you've got a huge staff. <laughs> Massive, it's yeah. comfortably one of the biggest employers in Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> so there's somewhere around there's somewhere around five of you. Yeah, on any given if you count the uh, if you count the resident dog, there's about five of us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. so you do you do all of this with five of you, which means product development uh, falls on your shoulders. And yes, from the perspective that. Um, we all do everything. So, for example, the CFO is in very much engaged in product development, mm -hmm. right? Um, our corporate development officer, um, who looks at everything from new products and um, new relationships, partnerships, things like that, um, is involved mm -hmm. in it, right? And so, once we land on, excuse me, once we land on a product. Um, he's as much involved in getting it to market 
as the CFO is or that I am or um, that our salesperson is, things like that. So um, I'm not allowed to touch our books. Um, but <laughs> other than that, um, I um, uh, we all do everything, right? So literally, um, if we have to push pallets or pack boxes, right? Um, the CFO can be found pack, packing boxes. I can be found pushing pallets, you know, yeah. things like unloading a truck, things like that. So um, we get it done, but it's a, it's a pretty busy day and it's a pretty long day. So we're at WeWork now. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to pack and ship out of your house. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that you probably don't pack and ship out of the house anymore. Not out of my house, no. How do you, no. how do you, so, I mean, how do you find, uh, so all the, um, all the, online direct to cons- customer we still pick and pack ourselves okay right um and it's just not uptown here yep the wholesale stuff which is you know the harris teeters or the you know, publics and things like that um we are very fortunate to have um, two phenomenal distribution partners one is um actually they're headquartered here in charlotte europa sports okay and uh, they have about 10 distribution centers across the country, and we're in all 10 of those. Oh, wow. So, um, and then we have co-packers where, you know, we leverage their swing space such that they can drop ship um, directly to a Europa distribution center or directly to a CVS distribution center, things like that. So we try to move the inventory as few times as possible. So as opposed to taking everything into Charlotte, then parsing it out across um, about um, about twenty eight different DCs when you distribution centers, when you think about all the Europas, all the CVSs, all the Selects, you know things like that. Um, we don't want to bring it all in here and then move it out to twenty eight places. So um, we drop ship from Texas and from Pennsylvania and from all over the place. Okay. So, so you said it earlier on in our, our conversation, this is an established industry. Um, it's not something that popped up overnight. Um, it's not like the Uber, right? You, right yeah. um, you, you kind of come into an old school place and you, you put a stake on the ground and said, come beat it. Right. Um, kind of challenging, um, I would assume. Um, kind of scary. What gives you the? I mean, how do you have the audacity to yeah. to do that? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question. Um, as my father always said, you can't fix stupid, right? Um, so unfortunately not. Unfortunately <laughs> not. A lot of the world's problems would go away. Exactly. If we could, yeah. I've been plagued by that stupidity for yeah. a long time. Um, so there was um, even from the beginning, there was a. This is a very old space. Nutrition in general is just very old, right? Yeah. And so, let alone sports nutrition, which is is also very old. Very established. But if you look at any other industry, Will, like you look at tech and telecom or transit, like um, taxis and Ubers and things like that, or um, you, you look at um, telecommunications, you look at um, just about anything, uh, the it's there have been so many disruptors out there, and yet nutrition has never been disrupted. Yeah, right. It's like okay, how do you disrupt food? Right, you can't. Right, but the reality is, um, it's a 
horrible, filthy, disgusting business. And what consumers, as consumers became wildly educated, where because they have resources to their avail today that just didn't exist. Yeah. Right? When I was growing up, you know, you ate what was put in front of you and you didn't actually know if it was good for you or bad for you. You're just happy to eat. Yeah. And so the, um, whereas now the resources, um, that are to people's avail, um, whether it's through an influencer on Instagram or just, you know, a Google search or just whatever, you know, people like yourselves who bring, um, blogs and newsletters and podcasts to, to bear, right. And have a certain expertise and niche. Um, there's so much information. Consumers are wildly educated now. And yet, we had never adopted nutrition, right? And so, like, you, um, it was sort of ripe for the taking, no pun intended, but um, it's like, well, hold on, the clean, lean nutrition space, right? Aside of buying yourself an apple or an orange or something, right? Clean, lean sports nutrition was wide open for the taking. Yep. Right? And so, the... Um, so we began to disrupt it and, you know, I, I had a boss who used to always say, you know, the pioneer because he's the guy with all the spears in his back. Yeah. Right? And so, <laughs> so it did feel like that some days. Right. And so, because we were sort of out there in this big wide open spaces and people were firing arrows at us all day long. And, um, but then, um, customers really took to, our um, passion and and our uh, mission and sort of what we're doing and um, that groundswell and now other big brands sit up and pay attention. You look at like a, the example I love is um, uh, RX Bar, right? RX Bar was bought uh, by Kellogg's for about six hundred million at the end of last year. Okay. Now RX Bar is just an egg white based bar that they've done some neat flavors with. A really clever idea, actually. Well, let's face it, if Kellogg's wanted to, they could create an egg white bar. I'm pretty sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you would think so. I would think yeah. so, right? But the reality is um, what these strategic brands can't do is pivot and create that relationship and that intimacy and rapport with you, the customer, the way these cold craft brands like RX Bar or Cliff Bar or Kind Bar ourselves can establish. Yeah, right? You don't trust them. Right, yeah. I don't trust Kellogg's to do it. Right. And so, you know, and um, the consumers are so well-educated. They just, they wanted something super simple and super trusted and super clean, right? Well, we can deliver that. That's not a problem, right? And we began to deliver it. And so, um, and the rest is sort of history because then we sort of got the groundswell and... You know, we have phenomenal customers. Do you regret, and we're running up on time here, so, you know, again, first part, I wanted to kind of explore history of sure. um, Eat the Bear, and I want to continue that a little bit. And then second part, we're going to talk a little bit more about the capital and, and everything else mm-hmm. in Charlotte and stuff like that. Uh, do you regret any aspect of it? I mean, you left, an, I'm assuming, a, a fairly nice paying job, um, and but you've now got this thing of your own. So I don't regret any of it. Yeah. I, I mean, like I referenced earlier, uh, I made a lot of mistakes along the way and I would have done those differently. Yeah. Um, but I learned a ton from them and, you know, I came across, uh, some phenomenal people. I came across people that 
I hope never to see again as well, <laughs> right? And, you know, because, you know, there again, you make a few decisions that aren't great. And so, so but I don't regret any of that, yeah. right? There are things I would have done differently and people I would have aligned to differently. Uh, but I learned and we got better when with every mistake and with every time we did something right, um, we got better every single time. So I don't regret it per se. Right? Okay. And in terms of leaving corporate, um, 23 years, um, it was phenomenal. Lived all over the world, had phenomenal experiences. Um, uh, the But it, this was a very logical jumping off point for me this yep. time last year. And... Um, maybe I regret not doing it a year or two sooner, but um, again, I, um, I I think you make decisions with the data you have at that moment in time, and um, last year was probably the right jumping off point. Okay. So. That's a perfect way for us to kind of wrap up, because we know um, um, you obviously know the jumping off point, I do too <laughs> as well. So, um, so thanks for carving out, again, thanks again for carving out some time. Um, appreciate it, and certainly look forward to what we eventually be next week's podcast but Mm -hmm. um but thanks again pleasure good little podcast interview with jude i like it a lot um you know again i enjoyed my my hour and a half or two hour time with jude where we kind of got to know each other a little bit and then you know from there jump two feet into um two feet into the podcast with him but it was great that he was just looking for his a, a way to fill his own need um, he got that shipped to him and, the, and then slowly started to grow the, grow the company from there. I think it's fantastic that gosh knows he was moonlighting, right? I mean, he was working across the street for a startup, Eat the Bear, um, early in the morning and late at night. He'd pop across the street and work his main job from, you know, seven to six and, and then finish things off at Eat the Bear. So a story that I think, again, entrepreneurs in Charlotte or budding entrepreneurs in Charlotte could learn from. Um, it's a way to kind of test it before you move out and, and really start to, to take it to the next level. So hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast. Come back for next week as we explore a little bit more about what caused Jude to jump off and, and really make this his first full-time job. And then what's his, what's his experience been like raising capital or raising money here in Charlotte. So stay tuned to next week. <laughs>